Hey, big digital energy fans. We are here on a very special edition today. We have a convergence of factors. We brought in the talent. We brought in the talent. So because we have talent, we're going to introduce him Mark's here. back too. So it's yeah. not just it's not our just special that. guest. By the way, that was a pisser. Last I was out buying locations for $2 million. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> No, we have the, the the confluence of events here are we're recording on President's Day. Colin is not with us, and we have our special guest today, Josh Young. Josh, welcome in. Thanks for having me. So, because you're the guest today, we have a thematic trivia question. All right, let's go. Given that Colin's gone and it's President's Day, who was the shortest president in United <laughs> States history? Oh, man, I don't know. Grover Jane? Cleveland. Biggest, I think. He was he was the biggest. <laughs> going the other I'll direction. say Martin Van Buren. James Madison. Wow. Five four one hundred pounds. <laughs> That's right. Five four one hundred pounds? pounds? Yeah. Wow. Grover Cleveland, though, was our only president, I believe, to serve non consecutive terms. Is that right? Yes. Which at least we, we don't have to recap the John Wilkes Booth angle. <laughs> was Lincoln the tallest? Lincoln and uh, Lyndon Johnson, both 6'4". And uh, that's always the Who's thing. Who's the we... oldest living, who, who lived the longest as past president? Uh, Carter, who's still alive, I think. Oh. Hmm. I think he passed Bush maybe 250 days after Bush passed away. Yeah. 41. Something like that. Who, uh, <clears throat> God rest his soul, is, or not, not yet, but he's been in hospice for a year, I think. Oh. Which is... So, all righty. So last week we talked about Diamondback and Endeavor and the commentary was basically all y'all did was talk a bunch of fluff. Mark was not here. We didn't have Josh on. Man, it was tough. tough Kirk time. and I will sit over here on our hands, not say a <laughs> word. Endeavor fang. Hey, I love, I love when we get critical feedback there from we our go. fans or, or our hate, hating fans. Either one. There we go. I think a, you know, just a basic framework, a recap of the the numbers, size, location, you know, what we were just talking about, production multiples, et cetera. So I, I think Josh is well more currently placed. I should I should have notes that actually show those uh, on me, but it was roughly, what was it, uh, 370,000 BOEs a day, uh, 150,000 or so barrels a day of just oil. And that's important, and I have to look up the exact numbers, but um, it's important to break that out because right now natural gas pros, natural gas prices are converging towards zero. Uh, we should have done that roast a few months later because I feel like it would have been real different uh, for the uh, for the uh, EQT guys. Um, so uh, when you look at the economics, uh, especially on spot pricing, the economics for the oil are sort of the overwhelming component of returns, at least on the current production which is why it matters to separate out the oil and the natural gas. Um, the, the most important things are it was over 10% accretive to Diamondback, I believe, before synergies. So that's a really important um, measure. And then the synergies that they represented actually seemed sort of on the low side. It looks like they sort of intentionally sandbagged those in order to be able to accomplish more. Um, they're going to spend less per well, which is uh, good because it looks like Endeavor was spending a little more than Diamondback was. But 
um, there's going to be some other cost savings in there. So anyway, $26 billion deal worked out to be about 72, 73,000 per flowing barrel of oil equivalent and about 133,000 barrels of oil uh, or sorry, dollars per barrel of oil per day. And then uh, we put out something at Bison just uh, real short comparing it to some other companies and prior transactions. It was the second most expensive on production transaction in the last couple of years in the Permian, second only to the Exxon Pioneer deal. And then it implied that Permian Resources got a steal on um, on Earthstone, it implied that Vital, which I own and I'm not recommending, is worth like four <laughs> times as much if it sold for that. And again, it's not going to sell for that. But if it sold for you know half of that from an inventory perspective, it still would have like 200% or something upside on those metrics, again, heavily discounting for inventory value. And where are the public companies generally trading? Are we And, and are we seeing um, kind of uh, different multiples based on size. Historically, the bigger the company, the higher the multiple. What does that landscape look like these days? So the weird part is that historically, it's actually the opposite. And we were just talking about this before we started rolling. The small companies with sort of the growth stories and whatever actually used to trade at a huge premium to reserve values. And the public companies used to trade around their reserve value or at a little bit of a discount in recognition of the difficulty in managing large businesses, the expense in managing them, and the, the challenge in actually growing uh, asset value and production. So um, the, this deal went off, it looks like, at around six times EBITDA on sort of a consensus 2024 basis. Um, uh, Diamondback, based on that, if it was 10% accretive, would have been at about six and a half times EBITDA. And then the stock went up somewhere between 15, around 15% or so from when the deal was announced to the end of the day on uh, Friday, the first week. So uh, the market liked it so much that I guess it got bid up closer to, let's say, seven times or seven and a half times EBITDA for Diamondback standalone and maybe seven times on a pro forma. Again, just using consensus numbers and just sharing the actual numbers of what happened. And I, I think as a comparative, as I recall, Pioneer was trading on an EBITDA basis about a turn lower than Exxon at the time of that that deal. And I don't remember the percentage magnitude of the accretion, but it's, as you suggest, kind of upside down. Yeah. So, so getting back to the small versus big and public companies, so you have some of the smallest public companies trading around two to three times EBITDA. You have some of the medium-sized ones trading in sort of that four to five times EBITDA range, and then you have the largest ones trading six to eight times EBITDA, depending on sort of the setup and whether they're a super major or which index they're in. Or and if so they're on. based in Europe, what happens to them? <laughs> it's complicated. Right? Something we've talked about quite a bit. So, uh, so the yeah. the the smaller companies trading at a lower multiple makes sense to me because in that the market just saying they need to go away and we'll get rid of the G and A and you know blah 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 and 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 all. So I, I can kind of see the market being punitive uh, potentially towards that. Um, the thing I found really interesting though about this deal, and I tweeted this out after BDE last week, is you know. Autry owns 99%. So there was one person making this call and, you know, really hadn't done anything in the way of estate planning till a couple of years ago. So, I mean, builds this company, owns it 100% himself, even heard some interesting discussions that 
Autry was never able to get a divorce just because if they got a divorce and they split up the company, they couldn't pay the taxes. So there was this kind of uneasy detente, <laughs> if mm -hmm. you will, that kind of kind of went with that. So till a couple of years ago, so it's driven by estate planning. Autry's really sick, unfortunately, uh, which is sad. Scott got cancer. So that played a role in it. But the thing I didn't think of until after we were on BDE is he literally could not have asked these various other players to participate because they were all tied up in other deals. I mean, standard in a sale and purchase agreement is until you get FTC approval for my deal and we close, you cannot bid on anything else, mm -hmm. right? So Exxon's on the sideline with Pioneer. Um, Oxy's on the sideline with Crown Rock. You've got Chevron on the sideline with Hess. So he literally didn't have a cash bid, which I find pretty interesting. So I'm, I'm wondering if something comes out, there was an overriding factor to do this, or if he just wanted to do the deal with Diamondback. There was a lot of talk that he wanted the company to remain in Midland. He wanted his employees to have a good home. That overrode economic uh, issues. But I find it fascinating that you would do a deal where the th you know three of the most likely buyers are on the sideline. Yeah, it's you know it's a it's already a fairly small universe of of potential bidders, and then when you take essentially three of the largest out, you've got. What was the old uh, Bum Phillips line about Earl Campbell? He may not be in a class by himself, but it don't take long to call roll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there ain't a lot. So, well, I, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent. I'd like to hear what what Josh thinks about this, just given the huge valuation dis disconnect of the small and micro relative to the larger players. We've talked a little bit about really the European response or lack of response, you know, you see these trend setting deals. If uh, you can, you can call Chevron, um, Oxy and Exxon a, a trend. What, what, what's the, I guess, what's the, the market or the investor case for coming back for say a shell or a BP to do, you know, to have an in-kind response, do they need to reestablish or establish a meaty Permian position to continue to play the game? Because they're all about closing that that chronic valuation gap that they're suffering for this and a lot of other reasons relative to the U.S.-based super majors. I mean, I, I, I've written about this before. I think the the way for um, BP and Shell to close their valuation gap is to stop malinvesting their shareholder money, which they're working on to some extent. And there's an activist that um, owns a tiny amount of BP that's sort of pushing for that as well. Um, so I think that's a starting point. And um, going and paying 133000 of flowing barrel of oil um, for production and to get some great inventory along with it I'm not sure that that's the path to a higher return for an oil major. Um, so I, I don't think that it would be a great idea for those guys. 
personally, I don't, I don't think that would be great for them to, I mean, it'd be great for the Permian producers and it'd be great for me for the valuation of some of the stuff I own, but I don't think that's necessarily a path for value creation for them, especially considering the low valuations they trade at and the relatively large asset inventories that they're sitting on that are conventional and offshore and various other places. If they want to have a better valuation or at least a better shareholder return, they could just flip from malinvestment in offshore wind and solar and various other stuff that they've lost enormous amounts of money on and just take that capital and buy back stock. So this is Kirk's point that I'm <clears throat> stealing because he brings it up all the time. Does Sorry, Kirk. Uh, and, no, and, 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 and I had a point that's worth repeating. That's yeah, great. The, the, uh, do you think at least part uh, of the European lower multiples has to do with the significance of their trading operations? I mean, BP has a huge trading operation. Shell has a huge trading operation. Trading operations have a tendency to implode. I'm not sure how high a multiple I'd put on a bunch of you know traders running in and out because you don't hear you you hear about the well, stop investing in renewables, lower return business, but you don't hear the quit using your balance sheet for uh, five cents a barrel. Yeah, you know I've I've actually looked at this. Um, Exxon and Chevron uh, do this too. Um, they just don't talk about it as much because they are less successful with it, and they don't ramp it up as much because they're also their history is sort of more uh, spotty in it. They've sort of uh, gone in and gone out of those businesses, and are, they're, they've always been involved in one form or another from sort of their early days of, of those businesses. Um, so I, I, I don't think that would sort of fully explain it. Um, I think if you look at the midstream companies that also have marketing components, I think that's maybe like the best proxy for that. And you don't see significant discounts for marketing components in midstream companies that also have big earnings in other aspects of their businesses, at least not today. So if you're a XYZ pipeline company or infrastructure conglomerate and 20% of your cash flow or something comes from marketing and you know, it's essentially some of the trading like you're describing, but they, they have a fancier name for it. Um, it doesn't seem to really hurt your valuation. And if anything, it is sort of more capital efficient in the sense that you don't have as much sort of sunk capital that's sort of stuck in any particular thing. So interesting you say that because I kind of like asked the question because uh, I have a view on it too, because the la largest Yates family holding for a long time was Plains All-American. Just I show up at Kane Anderson, we buy the GP interest. I cut a check. My pregnant wife is crying. Why did we just buy something where, uh, you know, a rogue trader put the company into a to near bankruptcy five years before? But anyway, it wound up being a good deal for the the Yates family. And I Planes made so much of its money, particularly when uh, the the curve was in contango in terms of trading barrels around. And I don't think the market appreciated that versus, you know, charging 15 cents to move a barrel from point A to point B. I just I think it's a question of like the scale of it. And I think both for BP and Shell, it's small enough that I don't think that's really what's ho holding back their uh, their stocks. And also those earnings have been pretty strong over a multi-year period. It's not like they had one bonanza year where they made a bunch of money on trading and then lost a bunch of money over multiple years. So I think those are the sorts of things that would hurt the valuation around that. So if anything, it's sort of better in the sense like you were describing where there is some aspect of it that's actually counter-cyclical 
and it's sort of more consistent than the cash flow for many other parts of uh, you know both upstream and oil major businesses. I, I agree, and we've talked about this as well. I think it's ill-advised portfolio allocation, uh, particularly on the part of the uh, the European majors, and BP being the farthest out in front on how was it put. What what's the rationale by the the hedge fund that's suing them? I forget the name. Why is why does the board and management feel that transition faster than society is transitioning, with all the the crosswinds that were prevalent in the early stages of the let's let's hurry up and go in things like offshore wind and solar. Mm-hmm. All right, Kirk, you're our resident expert on the uh, majors. Let's hit on that. And then I got our exit question from the uh, the Diamondback Endeavor deal. You're talking about just trading in general? Life. I mean, ran, ran on the majors. You're our major. I know guy. for CFOs, they hate trading operations in general because of the cash. I mean, you can be, you know, you might need a quick billion to, to cover huge losses, but. I mean, BP and Shell have been doing this for a long time. They're good at it. They know they have also. They're also they're also um, trading positions with assets, so they know what they're trading. It's not necessarily something that you know a lot of these hedge funds are doing, where they're taking a ton of risk. Um, they're not taking that much risk, but I do think, as Mark said, it's it's about well, actually, I like what you said, Josh. It's mal investment. There's been a lot of malinvestment going on by the Europeans, and and part of it is the stress. If you go over to Europe, you see the stress. You saw the stress, but now Europe's in a really tough place, as we've discussed as well. Um, as energy prices are so expensive that manufacturing's dropped to record lows, and now they're 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 importing, and there's a lot of issues happening. Which I want to flip that at some point because we need to talk about this extremely warm winter in the u.s and why natural gas prices are going to zero is that due to the weather and should we be worried about it but it's interesting because we've talked about how the warm winter has saved europe now we're talking about maybe the warm winter is screwing natural gas and uh it'd be interesting to hear y'all's take on that we we talk our own book (laughs) real quick we'll go to we'll go to natural gas next mark the exit question on diamondback endeavor great Five years from now, we're we're reconvening this uh, this group back together. We're doing a download on the deal. What are we saying in five years about this transaction? I think over a five five year horizon, I think um, structurally prices are going to make the outcome better than I think we would expect. Uh, what that better is. I, I can't really peg it, but from a macro perspective, I think in agreeing with Vicky and what she said at Davos is that because of the investment globally in exploration, we should expect that horizon of tighter markets and higher prices. It wasn't just Vicky. I've been saying this for a decade. There's been some, such an underinvestment in exploration specifically. Well, as I said, we looked at it for a long time, and I think it was the BP Statistical Review used to put up the scoreboard every year of what global exploration looked like. Uh, the industry got uh, increasingly bad at it, and when they found stuff, it was usually r- the wrong stuff to find as gas. And 
the success rates were somewhat generous in terms of what you would classify true exploration success. There was a lot of developing going on, as we used to call it. So I, I do mm. think I do think there's a catch up here, and that's not a real easy engine to restart because the vast majority of the world and the vast majority of the supply base is conventional, and that's a mm. that's that's a different so, technical animal and risk animal than what we're seeing. What has really filled the gap in the last ten years, and that in terms of the wedge of growth, and that's predominantly U.S. onshore and conventional, and predominantly Permian. So basically, beta outlook's great. Doubling down on beta was smart by Casey. Well, well let me let me let me explain that better. Just on a normalized basis, you know, four million a location, which in the old days it was dollar per undeveloped acre. But since you have kind of a three dimensional asset under an aerial expanse of acreage, it's better to assign a, a location value on all those future undeveloped locations. I, I'd ask Josh, sorry to interrupt your no, your your lightning round of trivia. We're on podcast or, or no, forecasting. I we should don't say. apologize here. How, how do you think just location uh, on, acre today on a basis paying four billion a location if that's the right number? What is that? You know how how does that look projecting out into the future? What what's possible and what is what is really really stretching? So there's two questions. One is Chuck's question, which is what's it look like? And I think the future is better for Diamondback having done this deal than not having done the deal. Mm -hmm. I think the market reflected that already and there's sort of a consensus. So I think there's almost no question, especially given the large equity component here and the quality of the inventory and the sort of industrial logic of longer laterals and sort of more synergies purely in operating the fields and, and so and on. And synergies so, actually really being synergies. You know, like I actual, think these are real synergies. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was saying. Like, yeah. I, I, I it's thought, accretive for sure. Yeah. I, I thought their um <laughs> I thought works. their synergies were actually understated, which is, you know, maybe 10% of MA. They right, understated. Right. <laughs> I mean they, they, they say that MA is it's like one of the lowest success uh, endeavors where I mean the bankers always get paid and they always love it and try to defend it to the nth degree. But um in most cases, there's value destruction. I think it's a good question. I think from an equity perspective, uh, it improved Diamondback's uh, position and it was clearly accretive. Uh, there, there is the opportunity cost question, which is, hey, what else could you buy? And does it make sense to pay this much? And you know, I think you have to look at the, the value of the inventory itself because not all locations are exactly the same. But when you look at the capital efficiency around this inventory and the high declines on the production and sort of what you'd end up with if you went and capitalized this asset to get an incremental, let's say, 100,000 barrels a day of uh, BOEs a day of production, um, if you just let the existing production decline off and if you just spent, if you look at it sort of to better understand conceptually the unit economics, you're looking at to get 100,000 barrels a day, BOEs a day, sorry, it depends on the exact locations and mix that you're going for, but to get it and to get it down to that sort of 30% decline rate that people are estimating both of these companies are sort of their production bases are at, you're looking at somewhere in the four to $5 billion range because you have to take the initial capital efficiency, let's say it's $30,000 per BOE per day by the time you're done with that first year. Let's say you have a 18 to 24 month payback, not just on the drilling, but on sort of the full sort of build out of everything. There are delays, um, true IRRs involve, you know, you have to drill 10 wells on a pad and then complete them or 20 or whatever the number is, but you're not getting that sort of 
spreadsheet or presentation single vial economics that that are shown. So um, you know, really requires a lot of math. When you look at that math and you say, hey, where can I buy a hundred thousand barrels a day um, for five billion dollars? Let's say. I mean, there have been a number of transactions at lower prices than that, and there are a number of publicly traded companies trading below that. And then the question is, okay, how much more inventory do you need to deplete once you're there to be able to sustain that production? And can you go buy something else that has a lower decline rate that might not require burning through $4.2 million locations just to sustain production? So I think I think the world sort of started at this sort of question, let's say 15 years ago for oil and gas. It went completely to the other side, to the um, more sort of private equity-ish approach where it's like, hey, what's the value per location? What's the capital efficiency on drilling? And then let's just sell it to XYZ big company that'll buy it for various reasons with low corporate returns. Um, and I think we're sort of getting back to that point where it makes sense to actually measure the corporate return associated with buy versus build and then sort of the net cash flow on a time-adjusted, risk-adjusted basis. The risk is the other aspect where you go and pay $4.2 million a location and then you try to drill it. It's like, are these um, locations, are they um, drilling locations or are they holding locations for asset value where you might you know, have some problems if you actually sort of like the eating versus uh, trading sardines sort of uh, metaphor. So I think, I think there's lots of questions around this, but the simple question of was this a good deal for them? Sure. And are they better off five years ago, five years from now versus not doing it? I, I think there's almost no doubt that they're better off this versus Stantoil. I, I certainly think market reality says scale is better and kind of 50 billion in enterprise value and higher when the lines are blurring a little bit between some of the quasi majors like, I, I still think of Oxy as a major and it still stuns me to see that ConocoPhillips has a higher market cap than BP, but there's that's a whole other show. But I do think you have a lower risk premium in terms of execution on all of that because of the long track record of Diamondback really proving it, both from a cost standpoint and a productivity efficiency standpoint. This isn't their first major or large acquisition rodeo. And so I do think that that credential uh, should translate qualitatively at least into a lower risk premium as we think about it, because there's pretty good evidence that they can get it done. Um, this is not, this is not the first go round. How do you think about the right discount for the second half or second two thirds of the pro forma inventory on a company like this, where you have the market attributing value, you have analysts and research firms that sell this stuff uh, to people and get in the newspaper or whatever for it. Um, but there's no evidence from what I can tell that going and drilling that second half of their, the, these companies, many of them have just gone and replaced their inventory rather than having to go drill their sort of bottom 50% or even bottom 75% of their inventory. Um, is it possible that the market's just overvaluing all of that? Mm. And, and the reason I ask that is when you look at the smaller companies with less inventory, they get heavily punished for this narrative of, oh, hey, they only have, let's say, five years or three years or whatever versus 10 or 20. But if you never test that 10 or 20 because you're always going and buying more, is it real? And then how much of it, if, if it is real, why aren't you drilling it sooner? And if it's not real, why are people giving billions or tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars in aggregate 
a value to it? I, I think these are real questions that that make sense. So, so you're playing this hand all the way out, and and <clears throat> let, let's let's think about it. If we went from start to sunset, just with what's in hand today in terms of inventory, the question quickly becomes a timeline one because the back third or whatever proportion of that inventory gets pretty quickly discounted heavily, if not to zero in some cases. I mean, not too many years ago, companies were talking about 50 to 75,000 prospective locations in the, in the midst of some, some big acquisitions. And most of those were private equity related. And I asked the question in an investor conference of the CEO, you know, what, what's really, what's kind of the, what, what is the drilling and completion capacity to get to all those locations relative to where you are now with your capacities to sustain a drilling and completion activity level of some number. And it was oftentimes multiples and multiples of that. I think we did one on when Southwestern first came out at their current rig level. And we were just doing this to make a point that the inventory that was implied on all of the Fayetteville acreage said you'd get to the end of that inventory by I think around 75 or 80 years. So what's, what's the long tail of that look like in terms of value? There's one other aspect that people don't talk about that I think is worth addressing and is a motivator for this. Um, and you know, I'm not saying that all of the inventory companies are counting isn't good. I just, I think there's probably a chance that some of it isn't, but there's another problem, which is that it's not really economically accessible. In the sense that there's not just a time aspect, there's also a market absorption question where if you look at Pioneer, right, I think there's very little doubt that Pioneer had at least 10 years of great inventory. So they could have accelerated that instead of selling and taken it to five years and had an extra 50 or 100,000 barrels a day, maybe even of just oil in addition to the BOEs, uh, the gas and NGLs. And the problem is was there a market for it? Was there takeaway capacity uh, for it? And then what people. would they, yeah, the people there is the, and I think I think the people were there and the equipment was there and they could have got the takeaway. The problem is if you have two or three companies go and do that and try to really ramp, let's say add 100,000 BOEs a day each, you very quickly get back to that sort of pre-COVID shale bust market environment and so if you're Oxy, maybe you're better off, even if you have the inventory, buying a Crown Rock instead of going and building your own Crown Rock with your existing high value inventory. If you're Diamondback, you're almost definitely better off buying Endeavor, merging with Endeavor essentially because of the huge equity component for that deal than you are going and um, trying to build uh, endeavor or a mini endeavor with your existing assets just by accelerating them. And I actually, I think that's one reason the market's been so favorable uh, for acquirers over the last couple of years is I think the market's sort of rewarding that view on capital allocation of going and buying stuff instead of building it. And I think that's part of what's driven these sort of higher valuations for assets. Mm. And I think I think that continues, and especially after again, I love the market reaction. I think that Diamondback is a better company for having done this Endeavor deal, and I think that sort of reaction is what gets more deals done. And I think it also uh, focuses management teams and their bankers, advisors, et cetera, on the sorts of metrics and the sorts <clears throat> of accretion that Diamondback is accomplishing with this. 
Um, so I think it's sort of the self-perpetuating cycle. So I, I, I like it, and I think it makes a lot of sense, even if there are these questions about uh, longer life inventory. There are two things here that have nothing to do with numbers that I always found out in my career. Number one, big assets get bigger. They just do. You get better drilling stuff. You get better at completions. You can never build that into the model. I mean, we would fudge and have the junior associate build in efficiencies like that. But just anytime you have really, really good rock, shit just gets bigger. It just does. It's always happened that way, at least in my 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 career of watching these things. The second thing is anytime. We, here was the joke we always had. If you had a chance to buy a big asset from a major, you wired the money first and did your due diligence later because big companies <laughs> truly don't know what they have and you just find stuff. And Autry was a great oil man, but Autry literally was running a $28 billion company on a shoestring. They have no idea all the stuff they have and they are going <clears> to... <throat> They're going to wind up, Diamondback's going to put a professional group of landmen on it, professional group of engineers on it. And the, the Endeavor team's amazing. I'm not disparaging them in any way. But they are going to find so much stuff they've got that's not even on the books that I'd be willing to pay 25% more for it just because you know you're going to find this sort of stuff. And uh, to answer my own question, yes, five years from now, we will be talking about how this was a really great deal from them just because at the end of the day, all the numbers we've kind of talked <clears throat> about and just the huge amount of optionality they bought themselves on beta, I and, think is. And somewhat uncharacteristically, Exxon kind of led the the opening round or the shot across the bow that, as you remember in the Pioneer call, they were talking mainly about the the source of synergies being from productivity improvements, things mm -hmm. like four mile laterals. But the one that I really got fixated on was this notion, whether it was apples to apples per foot or going from two to four miles, uh, they, they teased the notion of doubling recovery factors, which is, that's, that's non-trivial and that's really not in my experience, that's not over five years. It was over a time period, but yeah. But when we're talking about low single digit or excuse me, mid to upper single digit recovery factors of oil in place based on all the work that's been done in the last 10 years. And as technology has really accelerated, um, the, I guess the limit to reservoir physics suggests mm -hmm. that the level of complexity and the level of technical sophistication and technology sophistication, I think we're going to have to see to affect mm -hmm. that, even if it's, if it's, three to 5% more, that's, that's just a gigantic and a gigantically difficult thing to, to execute on. And, and so, so there's I, a joke about that, which is that, um, on a cost basis, if Exxon were to double its, uh, dollars to barrels productivity in the Permian that, and this is from like the service providers and so on, um, it would just catch them up to the average. So right. <laughs> you know, I think it's a, I think it's one of those things you want to pay attention to who's saying what. And if you look at their, you look mm -hmm. at the old reports out on, on drilling productivity and days to 
uh, drill and complete a well and so on. Exxon's been in the bottom decile. They've, they've been improving, so they're getting closer to that sort of average. So I, I would be very hesitant from the, you know, the the short guy talking about dunking, like you want them to, you know, maybe they need to be like average before they get yeah, it. It's, it's kind of like when we talk about, you know, the baseline for a, de a degree and a half. Why did they pick 1850? Yeah, exactly. It's the lowest point. Yeah. And Heck yeah. I, I'm just saying from a messaging standpoint, I know all the pre and post XTO and why Shell ultimately left the Permian and you look at some of their comparatives and they talked about, you know, how how they were moving into upper quartile and decile in terms of drilling completion cost performance and productivity and IPs and things like that way back in the day um, when they first got started with in this shale sweepstakes games and they were still far behind the the best in class. All right, Kirk, you're up. Good five years from now, what are we saying about the deal? I I mean I'm looking at macro trends and saying this is going to be a great deal overall because the world needs a lot more oil and gas. So, and the Permian is is one of the is the, you know some of the best dirt By the out there. So I'm I'm playing long game. I think energy prices are going to are going to sustain. I mean, we'll talk about gas here in a second. Uh, but so not a not a, a descending vote, but we'll have BRV on to give the descending vote at some point. Kick us off on natural gas. But first of all, I want to just say a statement. I, I tweeted this, and I, I'm I'm convinced. I'm doubling down. Exxon is an OG of the Permian through Humble Oil, okay. and people don't want to admit that. But I'm like, if you talk Midland, Exxon's been there for a long time. Mark, you want to debate me on this one? First, the H is silent, but humble. humble. They, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i lived outside no, of houston for a little bit and there I, I there were just houston the, the original discovery if you will was not exxon or Uncle no affiliated, but, no but yeah i i would call they're carpet baggers i'm sure i as certainly they were call humble and an og and i U.S. And certainly to say permian as well when, gas let's go to nat gas natty uh, i want to go to josh on this because we talked about this warm weather in the u.s which is you know celebrated in europe because we've been talking about how their inventories and and their possibilities of, of getting more gas is, is is questionable um what do you think about us josh what's your view so um you mentioned brv so uh tomorrow is going to be uh the uh, Sandridge dividend payment date for their second <laughs> special dividend, which I, I, I own the stock. I'm not recommending it. They did an extra, I think this one was a $1.50 or $2 special dividend. In addition to their ordinary one, there was uh, there were some posts about it going bankrupt at 70 cents and a dollar and so on. <clears throat> and, and here it is. They will have paid subsequent to those. Uh, we're getting close to $4 of dividends over a, let's say, three and a half year period. Uh, from a 70 cent share price. So, you know, it's getting close to the point where it's just, you know, all gravy in terms of what the stock is trading at. But also last I checked, the stock was at 1280 or something. So uh, victory there, despite natural gas prices being exceptionally, extraordinarily low. So I think the starting point for natural gas is that it's not impossible to actually do really well in natural gas. You just have to be a rational capital allocator in the natural gas space. And when you have too many irrational allocators, there's one I was picking on on Twitter a little bit where year over year per this uh, drilling rig report from a big investment bank, um, 
this uh, large uh, dry gas oriented producer had increased their rig count from two to six, despite the, despite the natural gas price falling from about four dollars in MCF to under two dollars in MCF. So over that time frame, you had the drilling rig count go up a lot, and you had by this one particular operator, and you had the price fall a lot. So it's very very interesting. I think to contrast it again, very different size companies, different prospects on investing. But I think in the end, you get sort of measured. I run a fund. My fund gets measured based on how I do, both on an absolute basis and relative to the the benchmark. And um, you know, I think it makes sense to measure these companies on their performance. And frankly, like drilling more into a lower price environment and actually way below their stated cost of supply, they show to get the return that they want. Uh, they took it out of their most recent presentation, <laughs> I think maybe because I mentioned it, but the one before that, um, it showed they needed 350 in MCF natural gas to hit their target return. And so, you know, again, just the disconnect of increasing the rig count a lot versus the decreasing price and only 40% of their production is hedged. So it's a very, it's not that incremental MCF that's coming from that incremental capital and sure it takes a while to come on and so on, but you know, they're choosing to produce their current production at like half or less their target price to hit their target return for their company. Are there other reasons, do you think, behind that? Um, I think I think that sort of gets into the realm of speculation. There are various folks that on on uh, Twitter and elsewhere that were talking about different motivations, um, whether it's trying to put competitors out of business or shake loose assets, whether it's an election year and people really hate this one, but they hate it so much that maybe it's worth giving it a second where, you know, there being ultra low natural gas prices suppresses the inflation rate and natural gas itself is small, but natural gas as an input to the U.S. economy is actually pretty material. Yeah. And again, it's weird because of the public statements made, but if you ignore, Buffett said this, and I forget where the original person said it, but if you ignore, ignore what people say and you just look at what they do, it sort of, I think, reveals, I guess it's an economics idea, right? Like a revealed preference versus a stated preference. And so it's a very odd situation. Not all the producers are doing that. Antero dropped a rig, Comstock dropped two rigs. I think you're going to see more producers drop rigs because it's uneconomic, but the largest single current independent producer of natural gas in the U.S., increased their rig count by 200% in a year as gas prices fell. Just very odd and noteworthy and I think worth talking about. Yeah, the the thing, I've got a mea culpa every time we talk natural gas. I mean, I just totally miss the associated natural gas phenomenon when it came to mm -hmm. the, the shell revolution <clears throat> with oil. You know, you, you sit there and you realize that just on a volume basis, call it a third of each well is, is natural gas based and pew, Permian's, totally just Permian's what seventeen BCF a day now on a plus or minus hundred BCF a day US. Yeah, production. and growing Current rapidly, production. and doesn't give a shit. To your point earlier, talking about Endeavor, well, it's the, worth nothing. The, Who cares? Yeah, this is yeah. give this it away. is just an anecdote. But um, I talked to someone on the family office side, and they do a bit of private investing in the ENP space, and we were just catching up, and he said, "Hey, by the way, we just." Um, we just completed and IP'd our seventh well in the program. I don't know how big, big the program was. But when you hear numbers like 25 million a day and 2,000 barrels of condensate a day and all the stuff you really don't see, at least, or don't hear about in the discourse, and think about how many more examples of below the waterline, it's, it, 
it, it reminds me in the public guys that are out there in the industry who have in some cases shown <clears throat> the counterintuitive week over week gas directed rig count goes up and we continue to kind of push this thing lower. I, I know it's not perfectly contemporaneous, but um, reminds me of one of my former colleagues' favorite quips. He said, not only did we shoot ourselves in the foot, we emptied the whole dang clip, which is <laughs> what what the industry, at least from a high level of the optics, appeared to be about. But, you know, associated gas, I think, <clears throat> for those of us who think about things like that and rising GORs and the Permian, you know, I never expected it to become the jug juggernaut it's become. That's a huge percentage of overall gas production that's essentially a byproduct. LNG export ban, if you will, by the uh, the administration have anything to do with it, Kirk, or just way more I supply? Mean, I mean, that's a question for Josh and, and probably another question for we should get some traders uh, on on the show as well. Because it did seem coincidental that, I, you know, lo and behold, we're not, we're going to put a ban on uh, potentially looking at new LNG facilities. And well, that's been the big, that, that's sort of been the main storyline around uh, from the political class. Yeah. Is this is a way to keep prices down for the economy through the election. But yeah, I, I think Josh's point about, and Doomberg's written about this a bit recently as well, the, the impact of cheap natural gas on the industrial economy and its leverage to helping keep inflation in check, I don't think is. I mean, there's a resurgence it, of, of, of U.S. manufacturing. And I mean. I heard Steve Chazen say this was a long, long time ago at a conference and they were, I forget exactly what the scenario was, but they were shifting more capital than at the time upstream companies, more upstream, more E&P is always better than anything else if you have anything else in your portfolio. And so he was challenged a bit in the Q&A. I love just one of the brightest CEOs I've, <clears throat> I've ever witnessed. And the response to the challenge as to why more Petchem or Petchem expansion was and, and Steve was both edgy, dry, and funny and smart. Was we like we like the notion of permanently cheap U.S. natural gas? Yeah. I mean, and that was the end of the Q and A. I mean, what's also happening is coal is going through a a resurgence in demand globally. So, part of me is trying to you know, if you do enough math, is is there is there a tendency of hey, let's keep gas prices down because coal could be coming back as a main as a big competitor now in the u.s well we shall see but i mean india's flying through the roof i know u.s manufacturers of coal are selling it globally any any thoughts of the correlation there josh any thoughts <laughs> Sure. So, uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting in terms of the resurgence of coal. I posted something today about just the, you know, the our world in data, just when you look at how much energy consumption is growing in the world, um, there's no energy transition. There's just energy consumption expansion. We're just absorbing all of it. Um, I think there's this real uh, miss from an economic understanding perspective by policymakers in Washington, D.C., and I know that's like doesn't that shouldn't be a radical statement, but it's the argument against 
um, central planning, and it's the reason why you want to have as little regulatory and tax impact on the economy as possible because central planners will always miss stuff relative to sort of distributed knowledge. Um, I, I think they don't understand that higher energy prices, because the US is a net producer of hydrocarbons, higher energy prices are net positive to the US economy, not net negative. And I think there's just this sort of laggard effect where they these economists in many cases were trained 10 or 20 years ago, or they're not economists and they're just getting sort of bad data they don't understand bad analysis and are sort of stuck in a, a sort of understanding of the world. Yeah, that's Josh, so take it down one more layer. Explain sure. explain the theory. So here. what that means is that if you, um, if you are in a mindset of um, essentially, I guess it's sort of like a scarcity versus plenty mindset to sort of like really generalize it. But if if you had higher oil and natural gas prices, you'd have more drilling rigs running, you'd have more pipelines being built, you'd have more service uh, people working on all kinds of things around the drilling and completion of wells, you'd have more housing built and oil fields and around them, you'd have more royalty payments with people going and spending money on using all of that, you'd have way more tax collection, which could then actually be used to fund some of the government expenditures, and you'd have additional expenditures in places where oil and gas are produced. Frankly, you'd also have it in places where they're consumed because there are taxes and so on on that as well. And so when you look at the um, the way that sort of the US economy has developed and the way that, that modern economies have developed, there's been this sort of tendency to overweight uh, services and to overweight sort of technology and um, sort of transactional economic activity, which is what the GDP measures. But there's also a sort of real component to it, not not just inflation adjusted, but actually manufacturing driven or other sort of product supplied. And when you look at it from that perspective, it's even sort of more important to have various uh, manufacturing or even sort of digital manufacturing equivalent um, activities. And so I think when you when you look at what's the economic impact of ten dollar higher oil, let's say from here, oil's at seventy nine, at eighty nine dollar oil. From 79, if you could, let's say, just keep it there for a few years, you'd have way more rigs running. You'd have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people more employed directly and indirectly and sort of the second and third effects of that. And so that that's real versus if you look at the negative aspect where you'd have people spending an extra, let's say, $3 per time they go and fill up their gas at the gas station. So you're so, saying the money, that money multiplier effect way benefits a lot more than the cost to the ultimate consumer of higher prices. Yeah. I mean, it's not even close. It's like radically higher. And everyone is so caught up in this world of like the government supposedly creating economic growth and forgets that economic growth is always and wealth is always created by individuals and small associations and groups of individuals and then is sort of collected by the government rather than created by the government. And then, you know, the government redistributes stuff and takes stuff. People and, um, you know, the, the private sector creates it. And I think when you remember that and then you look at the economic effect of uh, producing incremental supplies and, and just the benefits of higher prices mm -hmm. of those supplies that are produced here versus the negatives of the, the higher price on the consumption of those, Again, it's just there is that multiplier effect, even if there weren't, even if it was just a one for one, because we're a net producer of these things, 
um, versus a net consumer, there would be a positive economic impact. But because of the multiplier, like you said, there's actually a huge economic impact, which is a reason to talk about it because these guys just are not, they're clearly not updating their economic models. In many cases, they may actually not care or they might prefer less economic growth in order to punish people in places that are sort of viewed as politically undesirable. It's, great, it's, take. It's, it's, great take. It's great take. No, that is a great take. It's but it's the whack-a-mole. You basically have, in effect, like you just closed with, your political support is anti-hydrocarbons and boom. So you have to serve that. I don't think it's necessarily higher gasoline prices. It's the rapid change in gasoline prices that generally drives sentiment. And so if if gasoline prices go up pretty dramatically in a short period of time, people get pissed off. You're having to to deal with that. Same with home heating and the like. When you see kind of the rapid change, when it flattens out at a certain rate, people just get used to it and, the, and it and it kind of dies down. So it's juggling all that, I think, that drives government behavior as opposed to your point of being thoughtful. And, and, and so, I, I, I think it's a bit misdirected in terms of how the political opposition characterizes it because of the the huge overall net positive economic uplift and you think about what you know highly developed nations particularly the US in terms of uh, we have all this income and wealth uplift the proportionality of of our own individual energy costs is much less and so it's not as acute not as front of mind in terms of a an economic issue, and if you look at you know if we create a a scarcity and we've seen a, a little bit of a of a uh, um, textbook example of it all all around the the sanctions on Russia, and I just before we came in here, I didn't have a chance to look at the numbers. Rosneft reported you know very robust results, and it's. You know, it's it's the price effect, and what we would be able to do to really punish Russia is the West, the U.S. in particular, continuing to drive more toward an abundance, mm-hmm. um, and and prices lower, like we're seeing in natural gas. So those that are producer-based economies, and an overwhelming majority of Russia's relatively small economy <clears throat> is dependent upon prices staying elevated. Um, and, and so that's kind of a scarcity world where that, that advantage accrues to the, uh, the producers. So the get out question again, five years from now, we're sitting around here, Mark rapid fire round. What's the price of uh, natural gas? NYMEX. Five years out, five years out. I think between three and four, three and four. Where are you Kirk? Six dollars. Six dollars, three fifty plus inflation. Ah. <laughs> which will be six dollars. So I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we're on the same page. The needle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I uh, I like that. I I think at the end of the day, there is a permanent cap on at least my lifetime on natural gas at four. So it won't be above that. Just yeah. given that we can turn it on if need be. So. Yeah, we we used to say and this was more about reservoir characteristics and and fluid mobility gas is easier oil is harder bigger molecules more complex harder to mobilize and move but the gas potential of north america is 
there, there's just so much in the Arctic and on the North Slope and, you know, things that oh, today Western would be uneconomic. Basin's all, it's all natural, I mean, there's, there's, natural gas. There's 35 TCF care. sitting in the gas cap at Prudhoe Bay that just yeah. goes in a circle. So right. there, there were some analyses, I think, last year or two years ago where they were arguing that Henry Hub would, would converge with JKM and TTF, the, you know, the U.S. natural gas price would converge with Europe and Asia, and that there would be sort of this huge revaluation up. And I think it just didn't, mm -hmm. I think it didn't appreciate the relative abundance, even if you accept that, hey, like the, the core of the Marcellus and maybe even the core of the Haynesville is somewhat depleted. It sort of doesn't matter because by the time you get to let's say three fifty or four dollar in MCF gas, you can go to that tier one and tier two, and there's just there's a lot of it. Like you're and saying, we'll, we'll do a whole podcast later on this, but just the 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 refusal of the United States <clears throat> to ultimately just build things like pipelines into Massachusetts yeah. and more I, LNG. But TTF has fallen twenty two percent this year. Um, which I mean, it's it's not necessarily they're not ever going to converge. I don't see that, but it's definitely having an impact. And, and the framework, <laughs> they're one, absolutely one last point in the framework of the U.S. LNG pause, which is potentially a structural issue if you know it becomes permanent. We're, we've seen a number of examples <clears throat> in the immediate after, aftermath. We talked about India has an objective to double their coal production by 2030. Pakistan said last year, because of all the difficulty they had buying LNG, that we're going to quadruple coal-fired uh, thermal generation. And we've seen deals like Brazil looking at the Qataris, the uh, UK, I think it was the UK um, grain processor cutting a long-term LNG deal from other sources. So structurally, I think that's, that's an important uh, bow on all, the, all this in terms of, I think it was characterized that India's net zero plan or target date of 27, 70 is the functional equivalent of never. Mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> I think the timeline to sunset on coal is similar, similarly characterized. Yeah. All right, Mark, real quick, John Arnold joins the board of Meta. Colin is celebrating because this might uh, be the way that he's going to be able to get and... Uh, get it out and what do they call jujitsu grapple grapple with uh zuck yeah so um it was tw john tweeted john arnold tweeted out last week that he had been uh invited to and elected to the board of directors of meta which i found highly appropriate and interesting and i think it's a great move just a uh, a few data points Meta has an 11-member board, and not surprisingly, pretty heavy on tech entrepreneurs and, and tech executives or retired tech executives like Sheryl Sandberg. Um, then you've got some who have been fairly high profile in government service and law. Uh, their directors, we were I looked at the proxy earlier, their directors are paid a cash retainer of $50,000 a year. Now, if you're the lead director, you get $150,000. And their incentive comp, the annual equity grants, the restricted stock units are capped at 375000 at time of grant. And they have a policy within their um, governance that says that total comp cannot exceed a million dollars, which that's 
just kind of a gee whiz. I, I would have thought it would have been much, much more for his. I mean, it's just a couple of flights on the on the private jet. You burned through that quickly, right, <laughs> Chuck? Ah, uh, the good old days. So, so, so yeah. as we've been discussing, and I'll turn it back to you, I think there's a number of interesting and very, very forward-looking energy implications as, as regards this. I think it's a great addition to the board, and it's, a, it's a, an expertise and a skill set that they needed. Yeah. No, I mean, we've <clears throat> talked about it a, a lot on here. If we're going to triple the amount of electricity used in the United States by 2045, where is it going to come from? And I and this was at least acknowledged by Zuck when he's talking about we just have real energy issues we're going to have to deal with, and having John on board is great. We got um, the company I was chairman of in Canada. We uh, ramped up our internal power gen to go mine Bitcoin. Um, which was, I was like 2017, 2018. So I guess this was sort of radical. A bunch of Canadian investment banks hated it and dropped coverage of our, it was very strange. We like wanted to make money on our gas instead of losing money on it. And uh, they hated it. Um, they want you to issue shares, I guess, uh, make more money on that 7% commission on the share issuance than they right. do on you just earning money for your shareholders. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's a great idea for, um, for energy companies where they can, especially if, if you're producing natural gas right now, why not either encourage PowerGen? And one of the companies I'm invested in right now is doing that. They're building out PowerGen to supply the grid and then also trying to encourage folks to come and essentially use it more directly. I mean, if you can, you know, the, the Bitcoin guys going and burning uh, essentially flared gas or burning very cheap gas out in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico, I mean, it makes a ton of sense and you know, you're going to need a lot more of this. Uh, there was a AI um, exec I was interacting with briefly actually on, on Twitter. Um, I was trying to get an estimate from him in terms of how much power demand is going to grow from this AI rollout. He was talking about building sort of an NVIDIA competitor. Um, Sam Altman said he would build it for $7 trillion or $8 trillion, And then this guy was written up as uh, being able to do it for well under $1 trillion to replicate NVIDIA, which again, why you want to replicate NVIDIA, I'm not sure. Uh, is it worth spending a trillion or $7 trillion on? I don't know, but hey, interesting. Um, so I asked him, hey, how much do you think power demand is going to grow from AI and sort of what's the right way to think about the build out necessary? And he was saying that actually the right way to think about it is how much power can you supply? <laughs> because any of the power that you can supply, he we'll expects used. any we'll of the incremental used. power Absolutely. will be used. And it sounds like it's sort of, it's not economically totally uh, independent, but it's pretty price agnostic in terms of that demand. So it makes sense to try to start having, I mean, energy, I think, is going to be a bigger issue, even if you think that some of these stocks are in a bubble, even if you think whatever, you know, that this this trend towards significantly more compute and significantly more GPU and other similar stuff use um, I think is real. And so that could actually end up, maybe we all end up wrong on our gas Price estimates. I mean, these the the these uh, data center providers and cloud providers they're already at capacity. There is no more. They can't. You cannot build data centers. You think it's just easy. You just go build a data center. But the biggest problem with data centers today is using AI chips uh, fueled by Nvidia. Is they run faster, which means they run hotter, which means energy consumption is greater, and there's not enough power capacity in the market, especially the way these grids, the global grid has been designed 
especially with these import, you know, you have to have a data center in the US because there's rules and you can't build it, you can't host it somewhere else, et cetera. But there really is a lack of capacity physically. And and the biggest number one contributor to that is we don't have enough power in that location to be able to fuel your data center to provide enough capacity. That's the big issue. It's a big bottleneck now. Dominion is turning away uh, data centers right now as we speak. And so it's a real issue. And I know we'll, we've talked a lot about this on the podcast, so I won't belabor it. Five guys in a rusty pickup truck and some new frack technology literally could go double U.S. oil production because we did that, right? You can't do that in power. It's way more complicated. You've got a grid. You've got to sync things. It's crazy. So well, and, and so this will, in terms of John Ar- modular reactors, will solve it. <laughs> John Arnold joining Meta's board, I think, is more specifically forward-looking because of his, you know, outs- outside of all the great things he's doing on a number of societal issues with his foundation. His new startup. Yeah, his new startup is the mission is focused on improving the reliability Interconnecting and the, and the, the resilience of the, the grass. And he yeah. spoke about that at Fuse back in yeah. October. Okay. So yeah. no, it's yeah. gonna it's gonna be a big deal. Um last issue, and then we'll uh we'll get to our deep dive on an election. Cannot stress highly enough that every person on the planet needs to watch Mike Benz on Tucker Carlson. You don't have to like Tucker. You can hate Tucker. In fact, I think Tucker may say 10 sentences in the whole hour. But Mike Benz worked for the State Department. He was head of the cyber unit within the Department of Homeland Security. And he just tells a horrible, horrible tale of how basically when the internet first popped up, the State Department, the CIA, wanted free speech on the internet because that allowed all these groups, dissident groups and countries we wanted to overthrow, to gather, come together, throw their revolution. And we really pushed that. Developing those skills, we took it the next step of actually influencing elections in countries we wanted to change the governments in. We had oopsie slips or two we then turned this on ourselves. And in 2018, in response to supposed Russian interference in our election, we created a cyber group within the Department of Homeland Security that literally has gone out to social media com- companies and said, it is against the law for you to, to have misinformation on your platform. We're gonna fine you. The defense against the fining, because we we get it's really hard to police all this, is basically you run our algorithm that is called seek and delete, um, and you run that, and uh, we will let you off the hook if we catch you violating the, the policy. And they have been doing that. And this guy actually ran that group. And he talks about seven months before the 2020 election that they put within the algorithm things like you cannot criticize mail-in balloting because basically the the premise was any attack on our democratic institutions, mail-in balloting, the mainstream media, all of this 
was considered a cyber attack, just like you were trying to take over uh, a power generation plant. So anyway, it's just a very harrowing story. And the reason I wanted to at least bring it up is one, I want everybody to read it too. Our friend Arjun on Ar his Arjun Murti, yeah, just got a just got pinged by YouTube for climate change. We routinely get that, so I was like, "Yeah, welcome to the club." But uh, anyway, it's crazy because this I told is him to wear it as a badge of honor. This is running right now on our uh, on social media and tagging us mm -hmm. as they're watching watching us talk and. The important thing, obviously, is we've got a lot of hard decisions and discussions to have when it comes to climate change and energy and energy security and the, and the like. And it's just crazy that this is happening. Not only is our government listening to us, but this is great. Joe Merchant just tweeted, y'all follow Joe. Yeah. In five years from now, we're all going to be paying 8,000 an acre in tier two Utica. Bookmark this. Nice. <laughs> Well, we'll see if uh, we'll see if he got banged or not. <laughs> I, I think one of the there were two two things that stood out to me. I listened to it this morning driving through a dark East Texas, but the the actual designation of institutions that are protected by this from quote unquote attack of speech includes the mainstream media or the establishment media. So an opposition or a criticism theoretically gets treated as an attack on a democratic institution. Mm. Elections certainly are. Um, our government bodies certainly are, but extending that designation out to something like the establishment media, which I read as the New York Times and the Washington Post, et cetera, is is i think an uh an interesting twist that that gave me some pause in terms <clears> of I, what what did they my my the other thing that stood out to me is the algorithms that you were talking about he termed them the the weapons of mass deletion yeah isn't this just sort of um applying to the technology what we've already seen in the real world so like i mean in my experience uh, Bison did really well in 2021, and so we got interviewed by the Financial Times and by Barron's to discuss sort of what had happened and what we had done before and you know why it was working. And they were really interested in our take on ESG. I think they were hoping to hear, hey, we're making money in oil and gas, but we're real sorry for it. And you know we're going to reinvest in alternatives. And we're really surprised and sort of, you know, they, they, they printed it anyway kudos to them to still print these interviews despite not sort of meeting their normal sort of editorial standards. Um, but I think it was like quite damaging for our ability to raise capital, which was we didn't have the equivalent of the nonsense ESG slides that all these guys have where they pretend like they're saving the planet while, you know, <laughs> cutting down the rainforest right. to drill or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we're already sort of seeing that at least I can speak to that from uh, my experience and from what I see, and you know, you look at where BlackRock and Vanguard and these various other allocators or you know um, asset managers, sorry, uh, have been deploying and what they've been pulling away investment from. And I mean, I think we're already seeing it with capital. We're already seeing it with companies sort of doing various ESG or DEI or whatever virtue signaling, hurting their own economics in exchange for you know signaling something positive. 
So I don't know. I mean, is this really, what the, this is what pretty the similar. The difference for, I, I agree with you. The difference is we all knew it was happening because I would send out certain tweets and, and not get, huh, I got five people viewing that. How did that happen? The difference for me was it was previously kind of the woke liberal media establishment or whatever that's that's um, in effect uh, censoring my speech. This is the actual government that's doing it in effect, you know, at gunpoint. You know, Twitter, Twitter had to accept the algorithm. Facebook had to accept the algorithm. And that to me is just the civil libertarian just makes my stomach turn. Um, and that, that, that's what really, that's what really worries, worries me about it. I guess my, my point is just that's worrying, but so was all this other stuff. And the reality is a lot of the other stuff was sort of coerced or forced as well, maybe not by the government, but by large, you know, asset managers that collected money under one premise, which was passive investing and then switched over and sort of enforced all these different rules on many companies that then did the same sort of thing. And so at what point is that, you know, government enabled or government sort of endorsed? And it is different from the government actually doing it themselves. But I think I think we've sort of been moving, unfortunately, in that direction for a while on a number of different fronts. And I would just say, you know, this is, it's not great to hear and it's it's disconcerting, but I think it's sort of uh, the later stages of a long process that we've all sort of seen and, uh, you know, many of us have not spoken up about. And I think, um, you know, <laughs> Colin likes to say or joke that I'm the most hated man on Twitter. I think like speaking up about this sort of stuff has real consequences and, you know, it's okay. Like, I think, I think there's sort of this trade-off in terms of like, uh, how much money you make versus like what else you do in life. And I'd like to earn the best possible returns I can, but also, you know, if I do it with less capital, cause I'm like not filtered about this sort of stuff, that's okay too. The one last thing I'll say about the, the Ben's piece is it's interesting with Elon Musk because he in effect buys Twitter. He's the richest man on the planet, but the military industrial complex that's kind of driven this whole program by the by the CIA eventually winding up in this cyber unit, they're dependent on Elon. I mean, Starlink is real. He's putting satellites up into space with his uh, you know, Tesla being True. part of the green revolution and the like. And so there is an uneasy detente trying to be settled right now uh, with Elon on this. And I think we saw his response the other day when he was sitting there talking and said, you know, fuck you, right? And so this, this is going to be interesting to, uh, to watch. All righty. I'm off my soapbox. Let's do this. So, Josh, one of the things we've done on uh, BDE is we viewed this as the year of the election. Supposedly 2 billion people are going to go vote on the planet this year. And what we've been doing is at the end of each BDE, we take one of the elections we look at uh, real quick. We've talked about Congo. Um, this week, Pakistan. So they had elections on February 8th and just to kind of level set, fifth largest country on the planet. They have a bicameral parliamentary federal structure. They vote for the lower house, which is called the National Assembly. 
336 members, 266 of those are elected, 70 seats are reserved for minority and women candidates. Ultimately, the National Assembly uh, votes for the prime minister. So what's been fascinating about this is the winner, uh, uh, the PTI party was founded by Imran Khan, who uh, Mark informed me this morning is like the Michael Jordan of cricket in Pakistan. Yeah, uh, a big, huge deal. He was the 22nd prime minister of Pakistan from uh, 2018 till April of 2022. He's been in jail during this whole election. He was arrested last year on charges of corruption and leaking state secrets. So we're highlighting this because we want to highlight something that has to do with energy. But I wanted to point these things out. This is the first election where the party that's winning was not backed by the military in Pakistan. So that's going to make it pretty interesting. The second thing that was pretty fascinating is 40% of folks in Pakistan can't read. And so the way you would run as a political party is you had a symbol. And so you'd go to the ballot and vote for the symbol. PTI, I believe, was the lion, was their, their symbol, or the tiger. And uh, anyway, the Supreme Court stripped them of their symbol. So PTI had to run as wow. independent. So you actually had to be able to read the ballot. Um, but this is what's crazy and what I wanted to point out. The PTI was very aggressive in their use of AI. Basically, Khan sitting in prison would write these speeches out. They would use AI to create images of him actually saying it, and they broadcast this on TVs everywhere. They had trucks running around with big TVs of him giving these AI-generated speeches. They had AI-generated robo phone calls that were his voice, and he from prison was able to win this election. And so... I think of trends we're going to see in the year of the election is the role of AI on these elections. But I think the punchline of this whole thing and the reason to bring it up is you're potentially going to have a guy who's sitting in prison whose elected leaders aren't being allowed to be seated in parliament, <laughs> being stripped by the military. You're going to have this un best case. You're going to have an uneasy electorate if this guy's not prime minister. To are you going to have an all-out revolution in a really big area in a nuclear power that's kind of sitting in between one third of the world's oil production? Right, the Middle East and Russia. They're here in Southeast Asia, and so this is just something crazy to watch. Give, given that level set, I will say from just long personal knowledge and study of, of Pakistani political history. I was there for a couple of years as an expat in the mid-90s. This revolving door of different party prime ministerships and military rule dates back really, at least as far as my research went, to when military leader Zial al-Haq, who had actually hanged Benazir Bhutto's father in the late 70s as a political political opposition, 
um, was killed in a what many believe with the U.S. ambassador. I believe it was in 1988. Um, there was a midair explosion or a plane crash. And so over the period of the late 80s to the mid-90s, it was a bit of a, a back and forth between Benazir Bhutto and then what is no, now known as PML Nawaz, which was I think came in second in the most recent outcome. Um, Nawaz Sharif was either in the prime minister's seat or he was in exile. And so I would say that Imran Khan, as the prime minister who lost a no confidence vote, there's nothing new about corruption charges and jailing or forcing prime ministers who've lost the prime ministership to go into exile. So you're either in exile operating a, a remote campaign headquarters or you're in prison. And what's made it different is now the populism has an immediate and instantaneous voice and distribution in the form of social media. Interestingly, Saturday, and this this had happened a number of times in 2023, uh, Twitter went black and it is still offline. In fact, when- In Pakistan. In Pakistan, right around the time that- Because I can assure you it's up and running right now here yeah. in the US <laughs> because we got some great stuff going on. Well, right around the time Imran Khan was jailed, uh, they had the longest Twitter blackout, I think, of all the blackouts, and it lasted a week. So it's 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 going to be interesting to see what happens. But they will, you know, they don't they don't have the same protections. At least the populists who are going to be clamoring and protesting. They don't have the same protections as who? As the military. Oh, oh, yeah. Those so, with guns and power. And, and usually, since that time he lost a no confidence vote i think it was in 2021 imran khan lost a no confidence vote there's been a caretaker prime minister who was actually now a sharif's brother i mean who knew all of this is not un, all of this is not unprecedented except for the um the communications aspect in the form of social I mean, media. It, it doesn't say anything making much protest our own and, politics. And actually the winner being unsupported by the military this time. You tell me that's, what how that, that sounds any different than what we have in this our own country today. Josh? I think, I think the most interesting part I, I heard in all this is that he won from jail. And, you know, <laughs> one right. of the two likely candidates for presidency in the U.S. is being indicted and so on. And folks are trying to, uh, you know, put him in jail. There was also a very weird uh, legal outcome in New York against one of them where, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars were awarded uh, for an Tuck alleged fraud. claim where there wasn't any they, they claimed fraud when there weren't any damages and there wasn't no any complaining witness. Yeah. Yeah. It was very weird. It was one of those things where you look at the value of Palm beach real estate. Um, and I'll then take you look at their claim. for yeah. 18 million. Yeah. Bucks. yeah I'll, I can... I'll, I'll pay that plus inflation. Yes. Yeah. You know, in a second, uh, you know, you, someone would pay 10 times I'll that. that deal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a, you know, 20 times or 30 times return instantly. So yeah, Crazy. I think, I think that sort of frame, like you're saying, I mean, it's sort of, there, there are these parallels and it's a horrible world where mm. um, one, where these sorts of terrible things are happening in any country, but also too, that there's this parallel to, to what's happening in the U S yeah. well, so. they saw what happened. And I think the most, uh, or the highest profile example of this statecraft of using 
social media and using, you know, cyber warfare, if you will, to allow the, 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 the populist opposition to affect what we're looking for, which is, was an overthrow of the existing government was the Arab Spring in Egypt. Yeah. That's when this really, uh, I think, demonstrated on a in a very high profile way, and there was a series of those type things happening around that time. And then the um, was it twenty fourteen with Russian and the Crimea, and I forget the yeah, I think twenty yeah because yeah. Georgia was under Bush, Crimea was under Obama, right? Yeah, and that's Dang. part of like what was exactly. what Ben's discuss was really yeah. the 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 turning point for when yeah. things started to okay we're going we're going to use this domestically yeah crazy josh thanks for coming on dude this thanks for was having fun me. having uh, having you i thought it was going to be more explosive like controversial you're going to throw some bombs out but no way. <laughs> Production math, I don't know. <laughs> Transaction values, I don't know. In certain circles, those are very controversial, but I don't know. I feel like these things, it's just, there's not really that much sort of new to say about these things. There's so much analysis that's out there. And I think, I think the big thing is just, you know, this emperor has no clothes around these high valuations on the largest companies with sort of the least opportunity to have outcomes that are different from consensus, which just, you know, is so different. And you know, maybe it's, it tells us that we're still at the bottom of the cycle because where are the, what were the ones we were talking about, Gasco and the various other sort of uh, tiny companies with the crazy valuations. We don't, we don't have those right now, maybe so much. So maybe there's a setup for the next set of small companies. So let's say I put my life savings on a roulette table and on that roulette table are a bunch of names of oil and gas companies where would I put my all oh, my man. stock right now? So, just, so just I can't answer first. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't answer that. I can, I can tell you the few companies that I own stock in that I've talked about publicly and why I own them. But I, I own them. But I'm not recommending them to anyone. But there's there's I think three companies I've talked about that I that I own that I've disclosed uh, and shared investment theses on and so on. Um, which are vital energy, which is in the Permian. And we've done a lot of math around sort of their intrinsic value and sort of the consensus view versus um, versus uh, what, what our sort of variant view is on it. And it's a lot of it's just pure sort of production math and doing a discounted cash flow analysis and reserve math versus the sort of negative, like less mathy, less detailed perceptions of, of them. And then Sandridge, which we talked about already, where they've just been paying Gift massive that keeps dividends. On yeah, it's unreal. Like the they. If someone listening to our money. show wanted to reach out and find you because they think that they want to invest or be part of, or yell at you, or yell at you, where or, do they yeah. find you? Call you so, an idiot. So yeah, yell at me. <laughs> I get plenty of that already. Um, info at Bison Interest. None of this is solicitation for my fund either. I, I run a investment strategy it's for accredited investors only you know talk about these sorts of things because it's fun to talk about them and because you know there's interesting energy policy implications and for educational purposes if someone's interested in in bison they should you know go on bison's website and click the contact us or email us at info at bison interests and we're always happy to to chat with folks dude what a pleasure man thank you yeah thank you guys for having coming on